listening to Thunder Radio, the podcast of the Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Centre. Thanks for joining us today on Thunder Radio. Robert Falcon Ouellette is a name many people are familiar with, especially in Winnipeg. He ran for mayor in the last civic election and seemingly came out of nowhere and came in third in the results. And just over two months ago, he was elected the MP for Winnipeg Centre. And we were very honoured that he took some time from his incredibly busy schedule to come to our studio here and chat about, among other things, the recent election, his role as MP, and what he hopes to accomplish for Winnipeg Centre. What I like about Dr. Robbie, as many people call him, is that when you talk to him, you really don't feel like you're talking to a politician. He is very personable and down-to-earth, and it was just really enjoyable to hear what he had to say, and I hope you enjoy listening. And one more quick note, we did have some construction going on next door to our studio when this was recorded, so that's what some of the background noise is that you will hear throughout. Okay, so enjoy. So I am very excited to have the Falcon, Dr. Robert Falconulet, in the studio today. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to be here. Oh well, we appreciate that you're here. It's very exciting for us. So, to begin, tell us what has your first few months, or I guess two months, three months, two months, yeah, two months, as an MP been like? Almost three. Almost three. Um, well, it's, it's very interesting. It's, uh, it's a really interesting place, Ottawa. I really enjoy my time here in Winnipeg, but Ottawa, uh, it's almost two different worlds, uh, the things you do here in, in the constituency and, and in your city. And then what goes on in Ottawa is also very, very different. And it's interesting to see the, the, the difference uh, between these two places. For instance, in Ottawa, um, you know, a lot of my time is spent on Parliament Hill. So spent uh, waiting for votes or uh, waiting to go into the chamber uh, during debates and also a lot of time in my office getting ready for some of those debates or committee meetings. And, uh, and, then, uh, and but then the difference here is I spend a lot of my time meeting with people, uh, my, my constituents, the people who, you know, who elected me and who I really care about and whose lives I want to improve and trying to take their information and going to find the right person in Ottawa who I can talk to in the bureaucracy or in the political uh, political realm, either the you know the political attaches or or the political um, the chiefs of staff and the ministers, in order to find out who can actually affect that policy change. And speaking of your constituents, uh, Winnipeg Centre, uh, I've heard you speak about some of these things before. But what are the main things that you want to accomplish for Winnipeg Centre? Well, there's uh, a number of them. Uh, mm-hmm. The first one is child and family services. So I'm I'm really concerned about this. Um, 88.3%, almost 89% of um, of children who were taken into care of the state actually have no allegations of abuse. Uh, they're there because of issues related to negligence, meaning the inability of parents to provide good housing and food for their kids. So that leaves around 11%. Of that 11% who have allegations of abuse, only 11% have a substantiated abuse that they can actually find. So meaning the vast majority of children who are taken by CFS are taken because of poverty issues. And this for me is uh, simply unacceptable uh, because we just finished the TRC, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, with its 94 recommendations. And the first five have to do with uh, child and family services across this country. And here in Manitoba, we've taken 
you know, thousands and thousands, almost over 11,000 children, and we place them in the care of other people. And uh, it's almost it's almost become a natural resource unto itself. Uh, you know, uh, you know the the greatest natural resource of Manitoba is our children. Uh, unfortunately, it's not perhaps the way that we expect that to be the greatest natural resource. In that people, uh, we take the children, we give them to someone else to raise. We you know we pay other people money in order to raise those children, and we provide lots and lots of jobs for many many people. And it's not to say that foster families aren't doing a good job that they're not good people it's just to simply say perhaps we've gotten a little too far uh, to another extreme in trying to fix problems which are fixable in a different way and so for me i'm you know often talking about child and family services i don't know if you knew this but 24 percent of all first nations children uh before the age of 15 will be in the care of the state in manitoba i didn't know i didn't know that one out of four so if you're a First Nations person, likely uh, you have a one out of four chance uh, to be in the care of the state before the age of 15, which is an incredible statistic. If, if any other social group in our society was faced with a similar statistic, there would be a revolution in the streets. Uh, people would be tearing down the legislature building. Uh, you know, there would be you know, mass insurrection uh, because people would say, hey, this is unacceptable that you could come into my home and take my kids. Um, and so this is one of the things that I'm working on and I'm, you know, really pushing uh, Miss Carolyn Bennett to start looking at, uh, you know, reconciliation for me is, you know, not just about the symbolism and, you know, murder missing women as well, which is also very, very important, but it's about, you know, how we live our future and the future is the kids. And so that's the, the, main, the main thing that I, I'm working on. Uh, the second one is uh, poverty. Uh, so ensuring that we actually get our child benefits. So it's this $600 uh, guaranteed income per month per child across this country. And uh, to make sure that p parents can get this money and that they use it appropriately to look after their children so they don't have to lose their kids to child and family services. So Winnipeg Center, the uh, poorest riding in the country. Uh, you know, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. poorest riding in the country. So this is one thing I'd like to see, uh, you know, us eradicate. And to give opportunity to these children to have, you know, maybe not have to climb a mountain in order to succeed in life, but maybe just to, you know, the hill, uh, you know, to, you know, maybe they struggle a bit, but make sure that struggle is not so difficult that they give up. Uh, and so those, those are the uh, two things. And then the other thing is I'm looking at uh, uh, rail relocation. I'm working quite hard on that. Oh, that's right. So yes. trying to ensure that uh, we actually have an efficient public transportation system. Uh, studies out of Harvard show that when you have an efficient public transit system, it actually allows greater, greater social mobility. And, uh, and so if you have an inefficient public transportation system, what happens or ends up happening is people can't uh, move around a city or get to the resources that are available to them. And so an example of this is a student when I was teaching at the University of Manitoba when I was a prof there, and I was teaching there, I'd have a student in the nursing program, just gotten off welfare. She was living in the north end of the city and she was trying to get to the nursing program at the U of M in the south end of the city, taking public transit. And uh, she, she'd show up late, she'd miss half her classes and I'd be like, well, you need to get here earlier. Well, I have to look after my kids, Robert. Uh, I, you know, my kids going to school at this time. Well, maybe you can, um, maybe you can get them in daycare. Well, that's expensive. Seven dollars, you know, or eight dollars, you know, for the morning. Eight dollars in the evening. I can't afford that. I just got off welfare. Okay, and we, can you get someone to look after your kids for you? 
oh, Robert, I don't want what happened to my kids or what happened to me to happen to my children. I want to make sure that my children are safe and I'm the one who's going to look after them. They're my responsibility. And so a mother who really cares about her kids uh, because she had to drop them off at 9 o'clock in the morning or 8.45, by the time she gets to the University of Manitoba, an hour and 30 minutes later by the bus, you know, it's too late for her to take a full course load, and so she can't get all the grants and all the, uh, you know, the, the bursaries and the scholarships that she deserves, and so she's no longer going to school today because she has other social constraints and because we don't provide an efficient public transportation system for someone who is on the lower end of the socioeconomic sphere, meaning she's poor, she can't access the tools and become a successful nurse making 90, 80, 90, 70 thousand dollars a year and contribute to society and reach her full potential. And and then with the repercussions for that is her children are not, it won't be probably as successful as they could be as well because you know, income often uh, gives you access to even other greater resources, more education, uh, you know, and even, you know, like soft education or uh, the hidden curriculum, uh, the things that you learn by, you know, like, for instance, if you have extra disposable income, oh, maybe today I'll take my kids to the museum for an afternoon. Well, you know, that's a learning experience for those children that otherwise they might not uh, get if you can't afford it. Yeah. So um, you'll have to forgive my ignorance. I don't know a lot about the process of these things, but you have these issues like poverty, CFS, and you go to Ottawa. What specifically do you do to try and get them dealt with? Do you just, um, you speak to people, you debate? Uh, well, for instance, so we have, uh, every Wednesdays we have our caucus meetings. So a caucus is every member who's a liberal uh, gets together in the various little groupings. So Manitoba or the Western Caucus, I guess together at uh, I think at eight uh, thirty in the morning, and then we uh, talk about for an hour some of the issues that are really affecting us and what we want to see happen. And we often have a we try and invite ministers to come in to speak to them to tell them what we'd like to see uh, happen. And so we have access to the ministers directly in that in that time period. And then we also have the larger caucus uh, for two hours, starting I think at uh, ten in the morning. And that goes until noon, and we, you know, Mr. Trudeau speaks, and then we have acts, and then we get up and speak for a couple of minutes about a subject that we really think is important that the Liberal Party should be looking at, and the executive, because government's divided up into, you know, the three branches: the judicial, the legislative, and the executive. The executive runs government. The legislative legislates or creates the laws of government, and then the judicial interprets those laws <laughs> in the court system. And so I'm part of the legislative branch, but you know, as I'm, you know, as I work to make the laws, I'm trying to influence the executive in how they carry out those laws. Mm, I see. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> pretty, pretty interesting. But, uh, <laughs> no, it is. It's it's, it's something it, I remember learning. You in know, school, yeah. In high school, yeah, yes. So I'm yes, living the but... textbook. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's wonderful. Um, switching gears just a little bit. Looking back on when you started um, your political journey, I guess, yeah. um, where did you think it was going to lead you? Did you think it, it would uh, be here or? Uh, well, no, you actually don't think, uh, I don't think that far ahead. Um, what you actually think about is, uh, uh, you know, just trying to survive through the the next few months. Because when I was running for mayor, it was, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of work. Uh, you know, you have to come up with some policies. You have to think about, you know, the various aspects to them. 
how to if your idea is good and uh, if there are weaknesses in the idea and how you can make it stronger and and when the media asks you questions in order to be able to answer those questions fully uh, you know they'll ask a question about budgets uh, have you know who have you talked to and if you can't answer those questions well you look rather silly so then um, that takes a lot of work and I was I must say I was quite surprised about the amount of work that goes into uh, running for public office and uh, you know it's also trying to find a team around you uh, and so you know just surviving I think was our, our main consideration and then when the election was over we're you know sitting around thinking you know that was a fun experience we had a you know a really good time um, you know I, I have to admit when I first started I, I didn't believe that um, uh, I had this belief that uh, you know if you were in order to run for office you actually had to be part of the elite of a city of a society um, that uh, no one else would listen to you otherwise and what I discovered was in fact actually if you are smart uh, intelligent you surround yourself with some smart intelligent people as well that in fact you can actually challenge the the power structures of our society and, and have a, a pretty uh, you know, a pretty good go at it and do so in a credible way. And regarding your recent campaign, was there a particular moment when you thought, yes, I got this? Or uh, right up until the end, were it you? It was about a month before the end of the election. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, that's because okay. uh, we, because what, what happens is everyone, we always knew it was actually going to be qu- quite close when, because uh, I don't jump into something unless, uh, I'm like, I'm not going to, I was running for mayor and, because I thought I could win, I thought it was still a long shot. But you, I, you know, you never know. And uh, you know, to do, you know, people said, "Oh, you know, you came close." Well, I, I always believed in uh, that. If I had another week or two weeks, I would have been the mayor of the city. But, anyways, that's for another time. Um, uh, but you know, running the, in uh, Winnipeg Center, uh, we always knew that we'd done our polling, and we knew that I was it was going to be close. You know, you flip a coin essentially in the air and it was going to be down to the ground game and who could get people out to vote. And then the Liberal Party made a few mistakes on a number of issues, uh, which made it much more difficult. Uh, but then we slowly climbed out of that, uh, that little basement and we were doing our door-to-door and really working hard. And we were still having good poll results. Uh, so we were still within the margin of error and we were a little bit behind. Sometimes we were ahead, but we always thought we could win it. And it was just, uh, I think, after the first debate in September, uh, around the beginning of September, where all of a sudden, oh, uh, not only are we, you know, neck and neck, actually, we're far enough ahead now that this is actually, this is ours to lose. And, uh, and I... And I think at that point, uh, I stopped sleeping. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because now that you no longer have your head, uh, you know, you know, just trucking along or, you know, yeah. you know motoring yeah. along, you actually, you're now I'm looking up thinking, okay, what am I doing after this? And how do I go about doing things afterwards? And how do I set myself up afterwards to be successful in the role that I've, you know, trying to do? You know, it's great to have a lot of ideas, but you have to make sure that uh, you can follow through with them and succeed at them. And so I think that was a, a bit of a nerve-wracking thing. And, uh, and then the election, I think after the election, I didn't sleep for about three weeks either. It was just <laughs> pure adrenaline. It was, uh, it was a great experience. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And you mentioned um, getting people out to, the, to vote yeah. um, when you were speaking. And um, I think youth and First Nations, uh, for the first time, came out in larger 
amounts, I believe. I'm not completely oh, sure. Oh, Winnipeg that's Center, correct. we went from 48% to 56% in voting, voter turnout. It's never so it actually been correct. that high in Winnipeg Center. Yeah, I'd like to get it higher. I'd like to get it up to mm. the 60s. And so I'm going to be working on that, making sure that people continue to, uh, young people, I'm still going to a lot of the schools and, you yeah. know, and talking to a lot of young people. Um, but, but, you know, I think it was fantastic. I think there was a, a greater awareness. And I think it stems from I don't know more. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, you know, three years ago, um, you know, I don't know more happened. You know, people, you know, we were, you know, doing our round dancing and, and I was participating. And, and uh, you know, afterwards, you know, how do you canalize or, you know, push that energy into something that's going to be productive and useful? And so this is one I ran, uh, you know, that was part of my I don't know more was running for mayor and pushing certain policies that I thought was really going to push society in a good direction. Uh, and I don't know more, uh, you know, obviously it, because it was such a, you know, a short period and such high energy can't be sustained like that. So it has to find outlets. And I think it kind of woke up a lot of young people, indigenous people about the power that they had. And I think, you know, when I ran for mayor, I was, I've talked to many people across the country, they kind of realized, well, you know, we do actually have a, a great strength. We can do something. And so now we have eight or 10 indigenous members in the House of Commons, eight within the Liberal Party, two within the New Democratic Party, which is incredible, the highest number ever. Um, and that's the power of people coming out to vote. Uh, I think it should be actually, I think there should be 50 indigenous people in the House of Commons. Uh, and I, I have to say, you know, there's still like, for instance, I was out in Quebec and I was, you know, I've talked to the former uh, Grand Chief out there, just Limpy Picard. And, you know, they're still they don't believe yet that, uh, that they're part of Canada and that they should vote. And I, you know, I just kept saying, you know, look, you know, you only elected one indigenous person in all of Quebec. That is, you know, that's not very good. It's 25% of the population. You should have at least elected four or five indigenous people in that province. Um, and it's probably because you didn't go out and vote. You know, Romeo Saganash, well-known NDP or former Grand Chief of the Cree Council, uh, he shouldn't be by himself in Quebec. Uh, and I think, you know, here in, in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, we should have more Indigenous people uh, because I think we bring uh, a lot of times a different perspective to what's going on in society, uh, you know, whether it's uh, looking at the environment or the economy or child and family services or, you know, just, uh, you know, relations about how Parliament works. For instance, when I sit in the House of Commons, you know, these people are yelling and screaming. And I've, and I, I people say, oh, it's just like you know, kids, uh, you know, it's just mm -hmm. like being in, in elementary school. You know, I've been a teacher. I was a teacher for two years. I've never had students scream like that uh, and yell like that. There's there, the level of disrespect. It's absolutely ludicrous to why, see the yelling. Why do you think that is? I've often wondered that. Um, when did that become the norm? I think it's, I, I don't know when it's become the norm, but I know that this is the culture, even within the, the Liberal Party. Uh, you know, I've been talking to a couple of my colleagues and they say, oh, this is just how it works and this right. is how we like it. And, I, and, and a couple of us, you know, the newer members have said, well, you know, this is, this is like, this is, we don't do this. Like, I don't, like, how do you, you can't even hear the person giving their answer and question period, let alone sometimes the questions being asked. And I even have the microphone or, a, you know, a, a, a little speaker earpiece where, you know, and even though I'm bilingual and I don't, I shouldn't be able to need it to have the translation. I don't need any translation. I can understand English. I can understand French perfectly well. Je parle très bien français. <laughs> but the, uh, I need it because otherwise I won't hear 
any of the going-ons within the house and it's uh you know like how can you even have a you know a debate if you can't even hear the res- the answer that someone's giving you uh, to one of the questions that you've posed and uh and if they think it's all going to be so hyper partisan maybe they're just going to give you a, a non-answer often question periods actually called the non-question or non-answer period yeah, yeah <laughs> uh, i've often it, wondered that but how I, I don't know like why they do it it's, it's some i think it's just a culture that they've come up with for so long i was kind of hoping it would change a little bit but w- with 197 new members who've never sat in the house before mm-hmm. but i i, I kind of have this feeling it's not going to happen mm. So you'll have to learn how to yell and scream, I guess. Uh, well, I, I sit in the back. I'm a real backbencher. I'm actually in the last row, a couple of rows over from, uh, two rows over from Mr. Trudeau. So he's in the center. Oh, and yes, so yes. I get a good view uh, of what uh, the going is on. I don't think, most people won't see me in the in the videos. Okay. Uh, so I get to sit back. I, you actually won't see me standing up very often either. Because often what happens is people will, you'll see them stand up for any answer their side gives and then, you know, jeering at the whatever the answer the other side gives. And I, so far I've kind of, I'm staying generally away from it. I will, if it's a good answer, it's, uh, you know, I will, uh, I will stand up and give an, uh, you know, applaud uh, to someone but if it's um, you know even a good question sometimes I'll do a little uh, yeah, silent yeah. <laughs> uh, applauding uh, and a couple of times I've you know I've enjoyed some of the questions I thought they should have deserved a, a greater answer getting back to your uh, indigenous background yeah I wanted to ask you about um, because Winnipeg Center is very diverse obviously and um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how your background as an indigenous person can possibly help bridge um, all the diversities, um, the differences, the different groups of people, um, if you if you think it can, and yeah. how how you how you do that. Well, twenty percent of the writing, or nineteen percent of the writing, is uh, of indigenous origin. Twenty uh, percent is Filipino, four uh, percent Muslim, and uh, then uh, uh, you know you can decompose it according to other ethnic groups: some Italians, Portuguese, um, uh, Ukrainian, uh, and you know I guess people of European heritage. Uh, as well as a lot of people from Africa and uh, Southeast Asia, as well as Chinese, um, oh, to varying amounts. And so for me, uh, I think the uh, you know to be an indigenous person uh, within the riding, it gives me an opportunity, obviously, to engage with a population which I think a lot of people in the city have viewed as being problematic. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure no one in the political sphere or in any uh, public institution will put it exactly in those terms. But I believe, uh, you know, if you actually, as an anthropologist, as someone who studies populations and people's fundamental beliefs and foundational value systems, I think if you actually look at um, how people view the indigenous people of the city, I do believe they actually view them as a problem. I'd agree with that, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, I feel bad saying it, but... Uh, and but the question is, I think a lot of people are looking, for instance, to someone like myself and asking, you know, uh, how can you encourage this population to be successful? But I also believe, uh, you know, indigenous people looking at me and saying, how can you give our vision uh, for this country and for this city to that other side as well? How can you be our a spokesperson? And so this is uh, an interesting role in, in trying to bridge the two great divides of our city. And I've often, I've talked about this. I talked about this when I was running for mayor, the great divide of our city. And it's going to be a hard one. 
to do this. Um, obviously, we have a great mayor who wants to do something. I think we have a prime minister who wants to do something. I, I suspect we have a premier and uh, hopefully who wants to do something as well. But are we really uh, able fundamentally to look at some of the issues that are affecting our society and to honestly uh, come to grips with some of the solutions that might be required on both sides? And I'm not sure we're there yet. Uh, this is uh, this is going to be a long, hard path. Uh, you know, for instance, we're here in the First Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Center (FM NERC), a great resource uh, institution uh, that says that has been built by First Nations in order to encourage people in more education. But a lot of people still don't believe in education. They don't see the utility of it, or if they do, they don't believe they can succeed, or it's for them. And I think this is one of the most unfortunate things. Or if they do see the education system perhaps as being something that doesn't really reflect who they are or give them the, the tools that they believe they need to succeed. And, uh, and so these are the, you know, like I was worked in the University of Manitoba and some, on some level I do agree. And, uh, but on another level, I think sometimes we just need to get down to it and just do the work in front of us that we can succeed, that we can be successful at the tasks before us. Because if we're not successful, I think in education, we're not going to be those warriors that our ancestors wanted us to be when we negotiated, for instance, treaties. Uh, you know, in almost all the treaties, there was a section about education. Uh, elders, you know, from 150 years ago, the writings or the words that have been written down during these treaty negotiations, wanted their children to be successful in the Western world through the education system in order to have the ability to master the things that the Western people were doing, uh, you know, the non-Indigenous people. Uh, and so education was seen as a path to being ensuring the survival and long-term success of, of nations and of just simply of families and communities. And so for me, you know, I, there's still a lot of work to be done, uh, but it's to convince young people that they can go far and they should be doctors and lawyers and not just simply you know, hairstylists and technicians and the guy, you know, doing the MTERA, picking up your garbage, which is also important. Mm -hmm. I, I you know, if you, you know, it's also very important, but those are the jobs that don't pay very well. You know, I want to see Indigenous peoples become so successful that people actually do say, hey, you know what? I want to be Indigenous. Mm, wow. <laughs> uh, you know, there's not, uh, you know, that's there. Who was, who was it that asked that question? Um, Maybe it was Jamie Wilson I was talking to. And, uh, you know, how many, you know, the question we can ask, ask and, you know, people often complain about the special rights of Indigenous people. But then you ask them, how many of you actually want to be Indigenous with all the social issues that come along with it? Oh, well, not, not right now. Well, okay. Well, maybe let's, so one day it would be, you know, I would be so proud if, you know, people around the world were saying, you know, I want to be, you know, uh, you know, I'm not sure the term, an American Indian, a Native Indian, you know, a Native Canadian, Indigenous person, an Aboriginal person, a Cree person, you know, an Ojibwe, Shnabeg, uh, Dakota, you know, and, you know, or Métis, Michif, you know, I want to be like them. You know, I want the same values as them because they're, those values have led them to greater success. How long do you think something like that would take? Because I'm sitting here thinking, like, that is amazing. Um, you know. It's going to take one generation. 
Uh, I think we've lit the we've lit the fire, right. and we're yeah. calling the young people. And this is why uh, I go to the school. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, a bunch of school kids uh, from the Wolseley School had written me a bunch of letters, and uh, just after the campaign, and they posted them to my MP address, which is free to write me. Uh, by the way, you doesn't cost a stamp at all to write your MP and to write the Prime Minister. You can just put it in the mail. An envelope written with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, Ottawa, and it'll get there. Or you know, Robert Falcon Ouellet, Ottawa, and I'll receive it. And uh, I had we had these letters, and so we wrote these responses to these kids, answering their questions. As as you know, the you know I think it was grade five, and uh, and then uh, you know my staff was like, oh, we'll just put them in the mail. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to go deliver them to the kids. And so I showed up at the school unannounced, knocked on the door. And uh, I walked in and uh, into the school and then they're like, oh, the classroom's just down there. The teacher probably will be really happy to see you, we think. So I went down and uh, I gave an impromptu lesson for about one hour uh, with these young kids before they're about to go to the Manitoba legislature to see, you know, and learn about the history of the building and, uh, and have a tour of the place. And, but I gave them a history of what's going on in the House of Commons, explaining to them, you know, the form of government. And so, you know, it was their first introduction to you know our democratic process and you know i was making sure that they felt that their words were important that they were important and you know maybe the impacts might not be super great but if they believe their words have an impact and someone was listening then when they're an adult and they come across situations which they believe are unjust or not right morally wrong that they will then believe hey if i can complain and I complain to the right person, maybe they'll listen. And they won't go out believing that no one's listening to them, no one cares about their viewpoint. And so for me, it was really important that that one step of actually going to see these kids because you know one day they will be voters, and if they believe their voice counts, then it will count. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah, oh, that's wonderful. That's where I went to school. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it well. Uh, the Prime Minister recently presented at the AFN um, Oh, what, special chiefs assembly yeah, Christmas um, assembly yeah that was yeah. a good old Christmas assembly so <laughs> my question is he spoke of a nation to nation relationship and uh, my question is is uh, what do you think that would look like <laughs> well um, this is the great debate is what does nation to nation nationally mean so from for myself obviously we have first nations and communities but I think if we if we look to to treaty, for instance, I think this the idea of signing treaty in for the historic treaties, the number of treaties, or even for instance the Bay James or the the Bay James Agreement uh, in Quebec, these types of treaties are nation to nation, and so it's not just simply one small community of a thousand people, but it's a larger geographical grouping of individuals who come together to express their vision, to negotiate with also a larger grouping such as Canada and coming to a solution and an agreement about how or how they should live together. And, uh, you know, obviously I don't think the nation to nation agreement has been really respected under the treaties because I think what's happened is it's the divide and conquer mentality. We're going to deal with one little community by itself with its resource negotiations and maybe we'll deal with another one later on and another one later on and we'll get what we want. Uh, and that's been the viewpoint, I think, of the federal government for far too long. I think if we look 
to Quebec. In the 1970s, we signed the Bay-James Agreement with the Cree, uh, Cree Council, affecting around, I think, over 24, 25 different communities there who came together, negotiated with the uh, also another uh, Atikamek, I believe, in, um, in, in Quebec, and they came together negotiating with the provincial government about the hydro development going on. You know, they have their own school board. It's huge. You know, it's well run. You know, the kids have a higher level of education. The children have a higher level of education than a lot of other First Nations communities in this country. Um, you know, they have lower levels of unemployment, less drug use, less alcohol issues. Uh, people have a greater level of pride, it seems. The communities are better run. They have mayors who run the communities. You know, also have their grand council with their chiefs as well. Um, but and they have a you know uh, an understanding about economic development about how it actually benefits the people of the local community not just people simply coming in and doing something and then leaving and this is what I would criticize here in Manitoba is it often seems we negotiate with one band council and then we move on one band council we move on Absolutely. so our hydro development always seems to move from community to nation community to nation and it's not to say that the community shouldn't be able to negotiate. But one community might have someone who might be an excellent administrator in education. Another community might have someone who might be an engineer and be excellent in negotiating and talking about hydro development. Another one, economic development. Another one in hunting. Another one in social development. But separate, you're much weaker than you are if you were all working together with these strong leaders in all these communities. And I think what's happened in the Bay James, the, the, you know, the, the Grand Council of the Cree from Quebec, is they've been able to combine their resources and become very, very strong. And, uh, you know, I just, there was a, an issue, uh, hydro development 30 years, 30 years ago, Genpeg. There was a First Nations community uh, that, uh, you know, just recently, about a year ago, I believe, was protesting uh, you know that the, the agreement hadn't been uh, honored appropriately and uh, and they occupied the uh, hydro development or the hydro dam and I was you know reading this and I was saying to myself but they still allowed the hydro workers to come in to maintain it and I thought to myself geez how many of those hydro workers are indigenous now if you were in Quebec a lot of the workers now are starting to become from the James Bay Cree. They've attained the education levels in order to be able to run the hydro developments themselves, to be true partners, not just to simply be you know, that token person on the board, but to really have the competence and the level of expertise necessary in order to run these, these high-level operations, and not just to simply say, okay, we're going to give you employment to Indigenous people, and, and you're the one emptying out the trash can, and providing some of the food and doing the food preparation and driving the truck around for the workers, but actually doing the jobs that pay really well, that give a future for people. And so this for me, it, it, you know, if you can do nation to nation, it's really a nation to a nation. And so for, for myself, uh, it's not red pheasant uh, where I come from, my people come from, is a community but the treaty six is the nation and they should be working together and they should be and the government should say we're going to work with you but we're going to work with you on a larger scale 
because otherwise uh, I just don't think I, I just don't think it's going to lead to the long-term sharing of success that needs to happen among our communities you divide you conquer or you stand yeah. together yeah I agree yeah so if I was if Mr. Trudeau is listening nation to nation <laughs> does not mean you know uh, Canada negotiating or talking to a smaller community but talking to a nation a people's mm-hmm. people and then there needs to be unity there. Yeah. Uh, well, the unity can be created. You know, the James Bay Cree, uh, that was tough right. for them in the beginning. Uh, right. There was a certain way of doing things. But I think the Quebec government under the Parti Québécois and also uh, later on with the Liberal government uh, was willing uh, provincially there to, to have, these, uh, have this negotiation about how they wanted to be successful. And if you look at the difference... For instance, Attawapiskat, a Cree nation, same bloodlines, same peoples, uh, just across the border in Ontario, compared to the James Bay Cree, completely different. You know, one had, has, you know, they both have housing shortages, but one has much better housing stock, much better, much better off. They are much more successful, greater education levels. They're much more involved in their local economy. The other side, mm, a little bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. A lot of our listeners are educators or in the yeah. education field, so I always like to ask guests if there's a particular teacher that you had or um, <laughs> that you remember that influenced you, if it was in elementary school or in university. I had many. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, many great, great teachers, uh, whether it was Mrs. Leaf uh, in grade four and grade five or Mr. Burt, uh, the old Scottish man who... Um, who was quite hard on us and never took, uh, you know, anything for to be mediocre. He always demanded excellence of us. And even though I was in an inner city school or, you know, my high school teacher, my band teacher, Mr. Dwayne Hendricks, uh, who, who, you know, gave me his love, care and protection, even though he didn't have to do it. And even though he realized I came from perhaps from very humble uh, beginnings, uh, he was always there, always supporting me, even throughout university, and he didn't have to do it. He could have said, oh, my time ends now, but he really invested his time and energy into, I guess, this one project. And I was, you know, we're going to uh, talk on the phone, I think, later on this week, and we're going to uh, plan out uh, a bit a bit of my, my long-term future in politics, because uh, I really have great confidence in his, his judgments and his understanding of what I want to do in life. And so here, this one individual who's not related to me, who has no financial obligation towards me, or I have no financial obligation towards him, um, has, you know, you know, oh, this is this is tough. Um, you know, he's become, you know, like a father. Uh, yeah. and, and I say it's tough because, you know, when I was growing up, my father went to residential schools. He was an alcoholic. And I'd often say I, I don't have a father, I have a uh, I have a, a sperm donor. Even though I'd see my father once in a while, uh, you know our relationship was never uh, very great, and you know I recognized you know the issues that my father has, and uh, and I you know I still respect him for what he was able to do. A very intelligent man, unfortunately, a man who did not have the ability to uh, to succeed and reach the full potential that he deserved, even though he was able to go to law school for one year and he should have been a come of lawyer in the 1970s and who knows what he would have been doing today. Um, 
but you know, I, you know, and I still, you know, respect him and, and, you know, in a way I, you know, I love him. Um, but, uh, you know, and that's quite hard for me to say that, you know, this other teacher, you know, he's like a father. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I grew up a long time believing, uh, that we didn't have that. And so I think if teachers are out there listening, uh, to realize that, uh, you, uh, actually, you know, occupy a role of perhaps much like an uncle or, you know, an aunt or, you know, even a mother and a father to many of the children around you and to always do your absolute best and to expect the best of your kids and, and, and to demand it from them to not simply say, Oh, you just showed up for class today and you kept your head down, but to force them in, you know, to push them to succeed, to demand success from them. Because, you know, if you don't, who will? If And they will, you know, you might be tough love a little bit, might be good love, you know, good love. But it's, uh, it, the, the, that, the kids will look to that later on and say, oh, that person was a good person. They cared about me mm-hmm. and they led to where I am today. Yeah, I think especially with the schools that we work with are on reserves and I, when I hear you say that, I think especially for those schools, um, because it's just, just such a small community, and, and yeah. so they need students need that person to. Well, actually, they, I I actually have a master's degree in music. I don't know if people know this. I knew that a trumpet, I think. Is that what uh, yeah, you I used to. But yes. I one of the things I used to teach was a, the Kodai method, and there's this Hungarian. Uh, his name is Zoltan Kodai, and uh, he was all about education, how you teach music. And it was all about excellence in music, ensuring that people not just simply accept, oh, we all play the recorder and we, you know, we do okay at it and, you know, whatever. And the kids don't really care very much, but to actually teach musicality, to actually be, to teach the arts and that the human spirit is greater than just simply, uh, you know, believing that, uh, you know, the pop on or the, you know, the, you know, the easy uh, cope that you can get on the radio is all that music's about, but to push the human spirit. But he said uh, in back in the 1930s that the importance of a teacher is actually far greater than anything else in our society. Because, for instance, you could be the greatest musician and the director of the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. But if you mess up the Philharmonic Orchestra, you know, you might only last one season or one concert if you make a huge mistake and then you're fired, you're gone. But if you're a teacher of music and you last for 30 years, you can destroy the love of music in the hearts of a generation, two generations. And so it's far more important that the teachers realize that they have value, that what they do is important, and to demand excellence of the children and to instill the love of learning in children because the importance will last into generations. That's so true. Yeah. Do you still engage in music? Do you have time? I do. Yeah. Yes. Yes. What do you do? <laughs> uh, I play piano and I uh, have my trumpet. Oh yeah. Oh, so I, yeah, yeah. So I'm still playing. I'm actually, uh, I'm actually going to look to find a used piano today, and have it shipped to uh, shipped to Ottawa to be in my office. Oh, wonderful! So I'll be able to play for 15 minutes, maybe a day or yeah, something like that. Yeah. Take a quick break and take a quick break. Play on it. Drive people on the floor mad, the other parliamentarians. If to to the young people out there who who may may be listening, um, I don't know if they listen to our podcast, but if they're 
if they have an interest, not just in politics, but in, or in education, but in just, I guess, getting somewhere, you know, um, doing something with their future. What, what advice, what advice do you give? Uh, work hard. And if you think it's too hard, everything is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like uh, the biker uh, or the, the guy on his uh, bicycle, you know, in the Tour de France, you know, whether you're on your bike, you know, driving around Winnipeg, you know, that's hard work, you're sweating hard and you're pushing yourself or whether you're on the Tour de France, you know, the, you know, the, it's still just as hard. It never ends up becoming easier. In fact, actually, it becomes harder because if I can do it, you can do it, too. Mm. Well, that's a great closing. And I hear the construction has started. <laughs> so that'll be a good signal to end our podcast today. Well, <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for coming in today. It was just it was wonderful, wonderful to meet and chat. Miigwech. Thanks again to Dr. Robbie for being here. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Thunder Radio, and next time we'll be talking with some students from the University of Winnipeg about their Master's in Development Practice program and specifically the Indigenous Development Focus. This program looks at how Indigenous knowledge can help shape development and sustainability. So thank you for listening, and until next time. <laughs>